All right, so we are in the book of Jonah. We're in the last week of our series in Jonah. So we're in Jonah chapter 4. And so just a quick recap of, of where we've been. Okay, Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh and tell Nineveh that God is going to bring judgment for the evil they're doing. Jonah knows how violent and atrocious and powerful Nineveh is. So Jonah heads the other direction. He gets on a boat. And he finds himself overboard because of a storm that God sent, and a fish swallows Jonah. Jonah has some time to think in the belly of this fish, and so Jonah repents to the Lord. God tells the fish to spit Jonah on shore. Jonah uh, then goes to Nineveh. He preaches a message of repentance to Nineveh, and they repent. And so then at the end of Jonah chapter 3, where we were last week, we see that God relents from the disaster that he was going to bring. And so that's where we left off. And so we're going to find out what happens next in the story. The story really could have ended last week, but we're going to see that the story doesn't end where we ended last week. So before we get there, though, uh, a little, I, I need to share... Uh, this is kind of like a group therapy session. I need to share something that happened in my childhood that, that was kind of like a family motto of ours. So we would use this phrase, justice, all the time in my family. And here's how you used it correctly. I had a little brother, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he was, he was just a crazy little brother, like pulling knives on us and stuff. Like he was a crazy kid. And so often we'd find ourselves with my brother Luke screaming at us or hitting us or something like that. But so often what would happen is Luke would be screaming at us, and then he would turn around and run into a wall. Okay, and then my dad was usually around to say justice, right? Justice has come to Luke today, right? Or Luke would be screaming at us and he'd turn around, trip over a toy. And then we began to say, justice has come to you today, Luke, right? And the reason I tell that story is because a lot of us, this is our view of God. We essentially think God is going around serving justice in a way that's appeasing to us in a way that's pleasing to us, that, that God is issuing his justice just how we would want him to. So when my brother is mean, he runs into a wall. I'm like, thank you, Lord, right? And a lot of us think that is how, God's, how God works out his justice. But the only problem with that is Jonah chapter 4. God is just, and God does work out his justice. But what we're going to see in Jonah chapter 4, it's not always pleasing to us how he does. It's not always to make us happy. It's not always right in our eyes. And so we're going to look at Jonah chapter 4 today. We're going to go through Jonah chapter 4 together, and we're going to see a few things. One of the things we're going to see is uh, God's character. In fact, we're going to see there's three things that, that Jonah chapter 4 teaches us about who God is. And then what Jonah chapter 4 does is it, it makes a pivot. It pivots from telling us the story of, of what happened with Jonah and Nineveh and God, and it pivots to God inviting us, inviting us into having his heart, and so we're going to spend the sermon looking at the passage, then looking at these kind of three characteristics of God, and then we're going to spend probably the last third of the sermon trying to hear God's invitation to invite us 
into his heart for the world. All right? So let's hop into Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't know where Jonah is in the Bible, I said it last week, you're not alone, okay? Don't feel bad if you've got to go to the front and use your table of contents. It's between Obadiah and Micah. It's a smaller prophetic book. And so that is known theologically as a minor prophet. And so if it's hard for you to find it, don't feel bad. So Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, God has just relented from bringing disaster to violent, evil Nineveh. Let's see what happens next. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's stop there. So Jonah is, does not like what God is doing. In Jonah chapter 4, we finally get the answer to, as to why Jonah was so resistant to going to Nineveh. He says to God, no, I know what sort of God you are. You're loving, you're gracious, you're kind. You relent from disaster. And here you are doing all those things for Nineveh. Jonah did not want Nineveh to experience any of the goodness of God. In the Hebrew, this phrase where it says, Jonah was exceedingly displeased with the Lord, the literal translation in the Hebrew is, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. So Jonah isn't just upset. Jonah is saying, God, where are you? God, this is wrong what you're doing. This isn't right. And so then Jonah goes, you know, I don't want to live in a world like this, God. If this is how you take control of justice, if this is how you treat people like the Ninevites, God, just take my life because I don't want to live in this world anymore. To which all of us go, what happened to your repentance in, jo- in chapter 2, Jonah? I think this just kind of shows us repentance is, is messy and ongoing and God is constantly working in the hearts of his people and they're constantly turning back to him. And honestly, I wish I could do a whole message on that. But Jonah is upset with the Lord, so upset that he might even think what God is doing is evil. And then look how God responds to Jonah. He just says, do you do well to be angry? Is this good for you, Jonah? Is this good for your life to be angry about this? Look at how God moves towards Jonah. Right? Jonah is being insolent. He just listed all these good things about God, and he said, I knew it. That's messed up. And God, instead of smiting Jonah or yelling at him, God just asks Jonah this pointed question. 
to get Jonah to begin to examine his own heart. Does that remind you of anybody? Does it remind you of Jesus? We were talking about Jesus and love walked among us, how Jesus just often lovingly moves towards us, even towards people like Pilate. Well, it's because Jesus is God. So God is moving towards Jonah. Now, let's see how Jonah responds. God asks this question, and what we see is Jonah doesn't respond to God's question if it's good for him to be angry. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So God is trying to to get to Jonah. God is trying to teach Jonah something. So Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh and he builds like a little booth or a tent outside the city. God grows a plant to help shade him in this booth or tent. And Jonah's just sitting there watching what will become of the city. I think that was written intentionally there because Jonah was like, well, maybe God still will kill these guys. Maybe God still will take care of these guys. But what we actually see is God is dealing with Jonah's heart here. God grows this plant. It gives Jonah shade. Jonah goes to sleep. The next morning, God sends a worm to kill this plant. This must have been a powerful worm. I don't know. The plant dies, and Jonah is hot and angry. He's angry that his plant that gave him shade is dead. And we think he's being dramatic, but if you've ever been out in the hot desert for a little bit, you start to get angry. You hate everything, especially if your shade died. You'd be like, God, just kill me now then. They didn't have AC back then, so there was was just no hope in that moment for Jonah. And so Jonah's just like, God, why don't you just kill me? This plant's dead. Kill me too. And God even goes, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry about this plant. So he's, he's echoing the question he had already asked Jonah earlier, but now he's applying it to the plant. And, it, and clearly, God is trying to teach Jonah something. And instead of Jonah learning, he goes, yes, it is good for me to be angry about this plant, God. I'm angry enough to die. Jonah isn't getting it. And so we see God more specifically Teach Jonah something in verses 10 and 11. It says this, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. 
God is so different than us. And God loves Jonah enough to, to begin to call him out of his sin. So they have this interchange about Jonah's anger and Jonah's not getting it. And so God just pointedly asks Jonah, you pity this little plant. Your priorities are off. Why can't I pity Nineveh with all of these people in it? And even the cattle, which sounds funny to us until we realize that God cares about all of his creation. And that maybe even he was trying to, to draw Jonah in to what God was feeling towards Nineveh. Because maybe, maybe at least Jonah would see the cattle and, and, and see them differently than he saw the people of Nineveh. And it's kind of sad, really, that God had to use cattle to convince Jonah. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to look at three things that I think this chapter teaches us about God. And these three things about God, I think they will help us to uh, prepare us for this pivot that, that this chapter takes when God ends the chapter by just asking a question, inviting us into his heart. But I want to take some time first before we get there to look at these three things about God's character that I think will help us, okay? So the first thing that we learn about God here in Jonah chapter 4 is that God loves Nineveh. God loves Nineveh. Chapter 4 starts out with Jonah describing God's love. And God not denying that for Nineveh. God loves Nineveh. So God's love is for even for places like Nineveh. And God loves everyone and everything in Nineveh. I think this, this just means that, that God's love operates so differently than your and my love. If we're honest about where our, our love, we love people that love us. We love people that esteem us. We complain very often, and often the heart of our complaint is, those people don't love me enough. But God's love operates so differently than how our love operates. God loves even the most vile of people. We, we, can't, we can't downplay how evil the Ninevites were. Right? They were making murals of the sort of violence that they, that they would do. Some were saying they were stacking skulls of the people that they would kill for their walls. They were, doing, they were so violent that we even just know historically that they were very violent. We know biblically that they were very violent. And if that's just what we know from history and the Bible, how much worse were they probably? Right? If you're telling a story about my life many, many, many years later, you might be able to hit some of my evil, but you won't be able to hit all of my evil. So we can't downplay how vile what the Ninevites would have been doing would have looked to us. And yet God loves them. God loves them. This is, you know, this idea about God loving everybody. It's fluffy and fun and nice until we begin to, like, apply it, until we begin to give it feet. That means, like, God loved Hitler. God loved Hitler. 
God loves whichever political person you hate and think is evil. God loves them. God loves murderers. God loves them. This is, a, this is a heavy truth about God. And I just want us to sit in that. That God loves the world in spite of their evil. If he could love the Ninevites, he can love the world. And I just want us to sit in that because I think sit in that will, again, help us with this pivot that's coming up. The next thing John 4 teaches us about God is that God pities Nineveh. God pities Nineveh. This is strange because the definition of pity is this, the feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering and misfortune of others. So pity is when someone feels sorrow and compassion for someone because of the pain that they've experienced, the misfortune that they've experienced. And so God pities Nineveh? No, they're the oppressors, God. They're the ones bringing sorrow and misfortune to so many people. And yet God says it twice, that he pities Nineveh. God feels compassion and sorrow for them because of the the different misfortunes that they've been through. This doesn't make sense until we begin to see that God sees sin even differently than you and I see sin. Right? Even God, he says there, you can see how much he cares about the Ninevites and how much he pities them because he says they don't even know their right hand from their left. This wasn't, he wasn't calling them dumb. He was saying, listen, they, they don't know right from wrong. This was kind of a saying back then to say that they don't, they don't even know how to make moral judgments. And God, God pities them for that. We don't, we don't know how Nineveh became the evil city that it became. But God does. God knows exactly how Nineveh became the evil city that it became. And so God probably could see that Satan and his his peons and his fellow workers, the demons, worked probably for years and years and years on end to make sure Nineveh was a place where evil and violence abounded. God God saw exactly how that happened. Besides that, God saw exactly how probably fathers and mothers, generation after generation, taught their children how to do evil. And God pities Nineveh because of that. Or have you ever met someone and you, you're convinced they're, they're pretty messed up or they're even evil or they're doing so many wrong things and you're, 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 you're just so appalled by them? But then you sit down with them, you begin to spend time with them, you begin to see, okay, there's, there's no excuse for evil you begin to feel sorrow and compassion for their story and what they've been through and how they've been taught evil and taught to do evil and that so much evil has even been done to them. You begin to feel sorrow and compassion. I think that's just a glimpse of of why God 
pities Nineveh. The other reason that God pities Nineveh, it's, it's not just because of the evil that had been done to them and taught to them and spread throughout them, but because God sees sin as, as this disease. He sees this, this sin as this disease that spread from Adam and Eve to all of us. It's almost like it's a part of our DNA. And God sees that and he sees that we have no cure for sin. That no matter how hard we try, no matter how many rules we have, we can't beat sin on our own. We can't cure the disease of sin in us. And it causes us to rebel against God more. It causes us to do more evil. And that causes God to feel pity because of the plight of sin in our life. And it caused God to feel pity for Nineveh. God has sorrow and compassion for Nineveh, even though they're the big bad of oppressors. What a strange idea about God. God is different than you and me. There's a final thing that I, that I, that I want to point out that I think the, the narrative of Jonah chapter 4 teaches us about God. And it's this. Vengeance is God's and God's alone. So vengeance, it's, it's, it's punishment inflicted on someone because of a wrong that they did. And Jonah chapter 4 teaches us that vengeance is his, that the way that punishment comes about is his. Jonah chapter 4 is simply just teaching us what Deuteronomy, God has already outright said in Deuteronomy. We, the, the renewed people of God, also hear it again in Romans. It's something that we as the people of God need to learn and be reminded of, that vengeance is in God's hands. Punishment is in God's hands, not my hands, not your hands, not Jonah's hands. Vengeance is in God's hands. You and me, outside of working for a just government system that God has put in place to bring justice, you and me are not the decider of how God's punishment will be doled out. Only God has the authority and the ability to give punishment out correctly. Even we in our judicial systems can't do it quite right. It doesn't take you long to see different things happen in the judicial systems that in, in all countries, in all places, even though they try their best, they often get it wrong. And it's because those systems aren't God. Only God has the ability and the authority to truly give vengeance the right way. Not you, not me, not Jonah, only God. So the, those, those three truths about God I think are so important for us because if we don't know that, that God loves Nineveh, if we don't see that here in the text, we're missing something. If we don't see that God pities Nineveh, 
we're missing something crucial in the text. And if we can't trust that, God, that vengeance is in God's hands, then this pivot that Jonah chapter 4 takes will be like impossible for us to understand. It will be hard for us to understand. And that's, again, if we're seeing Nineveh for what it is, if we're seeing Nineveh for who they were, Jonah chapter 4, it ends in, in a question, right? It ends in a question. And it's, it's not because of cliffhanger. You might have already started looking. Is there a second Jonah? What's going on here? Like, it's not because of that. It's because God is asking a question to Jonah because he wants Jonah to examine his own heart and realize how far his own heart is from the heart of God. And Jonah later, when he either retold this or wrote it down or however that happened, Jonah left it there because the people of God need to be asked this question as well. The people of God need to be invited into God's heart to love those that are like the Ninevites. We need to be constantly invited into this place because God wants to invite us into having his heart for the world. Before we kind of jump into that, before we jump into this, this idea of, of God inviting us into his heart for the world we need to have like a little bit of a family moment. And I, I'm calling it a family moment because I think it's important for all of us to realize uh, some things in order to love each other well. And even to understand this text better. Because I, I, I want us to talk a little bit through trauma. Because some of you right now, you're going, this is great. We got to love our enemy. What a great Christian message. But some of you have experienced trauma. Like, violence has been done to you. And you're hearing me right now, and you're going, Anthony, you don't get it, and God doesn't get it if that's what he's saying. For people that experience trauma, this is a much harder lesson to learn. This is a much harder thing to hear about God. And we need to be, as the people of God, okay with that. We need to understand that those that have experienced trauma, and when they share those things with us, we don't right off the bat go, hey, you need to love like God loves, like there, there's a different process going on there. And then what you'll even find is when people have experienced trauma, it's not that they don't want to love like God loves. It's that they're like, this is impossible. I, I, I can't. I don't know how. I can't function that way anymore because of what's been done to them. Diane Langberg, she's a Christian psychologist, and uh, I, I asked her actually, like how, how should we teach trauma in the book of Jonah? How can we talk through that? And she pointed me to a, a definition by Judith Herman on trauma that I think will be helpful for us as the family of God. And so Judith Herman writes this definition about trauma and description of trauma from her book, Trauma and Recovery, the Aftermath of Violence. And she says this, psychological trauma is an affiliation of the powerless. At the moment of trauma, the victim is rendered helpless by overwhelming force. When the force is that of nature, we speak of disasters. When the force is that of other human beings, we speak of atrocities. 
Traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. Traumatic events are extraordinary, not because they occur rarely, but rather because they overwhelm the ordinary human adaptations to life. Unlike commonplace misfortunes, traumatic events generally involve threats to life or bodily integrity or a close personal encounter with violence and death. They confront human beings with the extremities of helplessness and terror and evoke the responses of catastrophe. This is so important for us in the room to know because our, our, there are brothers and sisters in this room who have gone through trauma and everything I've been saying in the sermon doesn't make sense to them. And it's not because they're bad. It's not because they're unrepentant. It's because their human systems have been overwhelmed by the violence that's been done to them. And so we need to take a cue from God here in Jonah Jonah chapter 4. Look at how gentle and kind and gracious God is to Jonah, who doesn't get it right away. God isn't just correcting Jonah from the get-go and saying, this is how it has to be. He draws Jonah through this time. And you know what? Jonah probably never really experienced any trauma up until this point that we know of. So how much more gentle and kind and gracious will God be to those that have faced trauma in the midst and teaching them this lesson of God's love? And so then how much more do we need to be gentle and kind and gracious to our brothers and sisters that have experienced trauma? Okay, church? We just need to know that. For those of you in the room that, that have experienced trauma, this is what, I, I want to say this. We want to be there for you. We want to love you. We want to care for you. We want to help you. We want to get you to the right counselors. We want to do everything we can to care for you. But there's also a couple things that as right, right now, as I'm teaching on this idea of God inviting us into his heart of love, there's, there's a couple things that, that I want to share with those in particular that have experienced trauma that, that you need to know, that, that knowing these things so that you know that you're not contradicting God's heart of, of love for, for the world. And so the first thing is this. You being invited into God's heart of love does not mean that your oppressors do not face legal repercussions for their actions. It does not mean that. God has set up governments and things so that justice reigns forth. And so your oppressors can and should face the legal ramifications for what they've done to you. And that is loving for them. It is loving for them because they begin to see God's justice, which will hopefully lead them to God's goodness and to repentance. The other thing that those that face Uh, trauma I think need to hear is it's okay to have healthy and safe boundaries from the people that have brought trauma to you. It is okay to have those healthy and safe boundaries. You don't have to act like they're your best friend. You don't have to spend all this alone time with them because it is loving to them 
to have healthy and safe boundaries. And so I, I just, I, I wanted to touch on that because we've been learning as a, a staff lately a lot more about trauma and its effects. And I couldn't help but see Nineveh being oppressors that God loves and how troubling that might be for some of us in the room. But that being said, now I'm gonna, I am going to invite us all into God's heart to love people like Nineveh. And so particularly if you've, you've experienced trauma of some sort, will you just give me grace? Because I, I probably will say things that are hard for you or that overwhelm you, and I don't mean to. And please let me know if, if there's ways I could say it better after this. But let's, let's see how God invites us into his heart. So as chapter 4 ends with the question, it's almost like the question is pointed back to us readers of it. And it's pointed back saying, will you love like God loves? And so I, I just have a simple question to get us to think through, are we loving this way? Are we loving the world the way that God loves the world? And it's this, who are the people that you'd rather see get punished than receive God's love? Who are those people? Who are those people that you would rather see get God's wrath than get God's love? Is it a family member who's been unkind to you for years or abandoned you years ago? Is it a boss who's truly unjust and unkind? Is it a roommate who, who lies to you and lies about you? Is it a friend that, is, that has betrayed you? Or maybe it's another nation for you. It's a nation that you look down upon. Or maybe it's another religion for you. It's a religion that you look down upon and you would rather that religion get God's justice and wrath than God's love. Or again, maybe it's a political figure that, that you just hate, a political figure that you're convinced is doing so much evil. Who are the people that you'd rather see get God's punishment than his love? And is that truly better for them? Is it truly better for them to get his wrath than his love? I think that's what Jonah chapter 4 challenges us with. God wants our hearts to change. God wants our hearts to become like his heart. I'm going to be honest, this is so difficult for me. This, this idea of me preaching, preaching this right now, I almost don't want to. And it's because I have this deep sense of justice. I know a lot of you think I'm like soft and sensitive, and you're right, but I think a lot of the most sensitive people in the world actually have a deep sense of justice, and that's partially why they're sensitive. 
but I have this deep sense of justice. It's so deep that sometimes someone will be sitting with me and they'll be telling me a story and they'll be, start telling me this story about something their teacher did to them. And, it, it, and it's completely evil and unjust. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I'm going to talk to this teacher. And I'm like, what's that teacher's name? And I'm Googling. I'm like, all right, Mrs. Whatever, I'm going to find you. I'm going to come to your office hours and we're going to talk or you're going to get an angry email from me. And I'm shaking with anger. That's a real story. Like, I'm shaking with anger, and I'm saying, how can I bring justice to this person who hasn't even done something all that bad? And so for me to sit here and say, hey, you guys got to love your enemies, that's hard for me in this moment. I unfortunately can relate to Jonah at the beginning of Jonah chapter 4 more than I'd care to admit. So where does that lead us? Is that that just, hey, good luck? I don't think so because I feel like in those moments when I feel like God's way is impossible, I think God reminds me, yes, it is impossible. That's why you need me. Yeah, you can't love like this. That's why you need my love. And so I just even want to spend the rest of our time here looking at how God loves us. Because if we see that God loves us the same way that he loves the Ninevites, then we might be able to love the Ninevites of our life. And I want us to look at how Jesus lived out this love for us. Because if we see that Jesus lived this out For us, just like he did for the Ninevites, then we might be able to live this out for the people in our life that we see like Jonah saw the Ninevites. Right? We can't can't love people like Nineveh unless we remember the great love that God shows us. The great love that God has given us in spite of our sin. In spite of our sin, I wish, I wish that somehow we could be given the eyes to see our sin for what it is. I think the enemy has done too much work and we've done too much work to convince ourselves our sin's not really that bad or we don't really have that much sin. But if we could see our sin for what it is, we'd be terrified. And we'd be even more terrified if we could see how God views our sin. We would be truly terrified. And yet, God has shown us love. God offers us love. In spite of all that open rebellion towards God, sometimes accidental, but a lot of times on purpose, God still loves us, despite our sin, despite what we do to hurt God's creation and hurt him. God still loves us. We can't have pity on sinners unless we remember that God has pity on us. Despite all that stuff about our sin and owning it and and acknowledging how rebellious we are, despite all of that, 
God has pity for you and for me. He doesn't just have it for the Ninevites. He has it for you and for me. Think of how gentle and kind he has been in drawing each of us to him. And think about how gentle and kind he is in us growing in our relationship with him. It's because God has pity on us because of the plight of sin in us. We can't, we can't trust that vengeance is the Lord's unless we remember that Jesus took vengeance on for us. We can't trust that punishment is in God's hands unless we remember that Jesus took punishment on himself. He took God's hands of punishment away from us. So if in this moment you're even going, Anthony, no, you don't get it. Vengeance needs to be doled out this way by my hands. You're also saying the cross wasn't good enough for that person's sin. The cross wasn't powerful enough to take care of vengeance. But it was. Jesus, being perfect in who he is, could take on the punishment we deserve. That, that's the only way through this, is to look to God and how he's loved us and realize it's not that different from how he loves the Ninevites. And it's even to look to the gospel and, and see how even the gospel is so unnatural to our sensibilities, but the gospel is the good news that you and me are saved when we trust in Jesus and the work that he's done. And so we have to look to the gospel too and see that the gospel helps us to love those like the Ninevites. Right? The gospel says one man lived perfectly for all of these imperfect people. The gospel says one man took the punishment even though everyone deserved punishment. The gospel says one man gives resurrection to all even though we all deserve death. When we remember what God has given us, that's the only time we can love people like the Ninevites. So yet God invites us into his heart for the world to love even people like the Ninevites. He invites us into that, but he doesn't invite us into that without first giving us his heart of love first. And that should be what fuels us to love well. That should be what fuels us to love enemies. That should be what fuels us to love even people as evil as the Ninevites. Aside from our trust that God is in control of all of this, that God can love how he sees fit, we have to remember that God has given us his love. We have to remember that. We have to dwell on that. Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to fall back into like what our fleshly sensibilities want to do. But God has a different way forward for us. 
And it's not just something we muster in our own strength. It's, it's something where we look to God and his love for us, and then we could do it. We see that God has given us his spirit, and we realize we can live it out only because his spirit is in us. So Jonah chapter 4 ends with this challenge. And the good news is, I don't think any of us can live it out unless we allow God to do this work in our heart and even live through us. So church, may we be that church. May we be the church that sees the impossibilities of Jonah chapter 4, but realize we have the God of impossibilities loving us and living through us. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, we, we, we need you. Like I said, God, I, I, I have a hard time sometimes even just reconciling these ideas about you. That sometimes, God, when I see evil in the world, I, it's hard for me to accept this part of you. I'm thankful that you're both just and loving, and when it's all said and done, you're going to take care of everything, God. But in the meantime, in the day-to-day moments of life, sometimes it's hard for me. So God, help us with this invitation you've given us. Help us with this invitation of mercy and love and grace that you've given us. And let, let it be rooted in us remembering how you loved us. Make that so tangible to us. Give us the eyes to see how you love us. If we could even handle that, God. Help us. We're just, we're, we are kids completely in need of you to change our hearts and make them like yours. And then, God, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in here who, who have experienced trauma, God. I know you care so much about them, that you love them so much. And I'm sure that this whole message is a wrestle and it's difficult and they're saying things to you, asking you why and all these different questions. And, God, I would just ask that you would be close to the brokenhearted, that they would feel your nearness despite the evil that's been done to them. And help us as the church to come alongside them and love them well and care for them. God, I don't, I don't know what else to say except that we, we need you. We need you, God. Amen.